You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hey, good morning, church family. Uh, my name is Parker Peelan. I serve in worship and um, as a GC leader. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy 29, that's where our scripture reading is from this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, if you didn't bring one, uh, there should be one in uh, the seat in front of you. Um, And if you don't own one, uh, now you do. That's yours. You just take that home. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, verses 1 through 6. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I've led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You've not eaten bread and you've not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Parker. Church family, good to be back with you again here. Good to see you. If you are new to Northway in the last couple months, let me introduce myself. Uh, my name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here at Northway, and I've uh, been on a sabbatical the last couple of months and just so incredibly grateful for the time, grateful for Northway Church and your generosity towards me, my family, our elders, just so grateful for our team that we have, Matt Younger and the other elders who've anchored in the pulpit the last couple of months been fantastic. Just so, so grateful. And, uh, but I am so thrilled to be back with you. I'm grateful to be back with our church family here. And uh, the Lord was just kind. I didn't do anything crazy, fancy over the sabbatical, just really anchored myself into the Lord um, and spent a lot of time uh, with the Lord, with my family and uh, come back refreshed, renewed. And uh, I got to tell you out of the gate here, one of the things uh, that was probably one of the highlights of my sabbatical is I, I did a deal that I just called a, a gratitude journey. I wanted to go back and revisit the places that I've lived and just recount and remember um, the journey that God has brought me through to bring me to himself, that I might have my heart filled with gratitude for who God is and what he's done for me all these years. And um, you know, I've done similar versions on paper, some life maps, things like that. But this one, I wanted to go to the places. And so many of you know, I was born in Chicago, but I was raised in Richardson. And I, uh, I went to Richardson first, spent a whole day there, had about 50 different sites that I would go and sit outside certain locations. And I would just remember uh, the events that transpired there. And ultimately what God was up to, at least what I'm seeing now at this point in my life, in those events. And I did the same thing up in Denton and Flower Mound and some other places. And, um, you know, there were so many sweet spots that I can remember just um, the Lord just melting my heart in, sitting outside my home that I grew up in in Richardson. Um, Probably to whoever lives there now, I look like some stalker on the outside. Um, But for me to sit out there and just journal and pray And the Lord in that setting really endeared my heart to my mom, um, who was a single mom, who her husband, my dad, abandoned the family and ran off with another woman. And she packed up and moved her three sons back to Texas, where she's from. And 
and raised us there. And I thought about, gosh, for her to live in the house she did and work two jobs as a single mom. And I just, my heart just melted in gratitude of, of how God preserved my life through her sacrifices. Um, I think about just, uh, I went and sat in front or in uh, what used to be a Brahms. It's now a Fuzzy's taco and uh, sat in the booth where the gospel of Jesus Christ was first shared to me for the very first time. And uh, remember the salvation that the Lord gave me. Um, and so many other places along the way uh, in my journey that were so meaningful. But I, I'll tell you, some of the surprising twists in that journey was the gratitude that I felt sitting outside the locations of some of the harder events of my life. Uh, remembering my dad leaving our family uh, and, and how that altered us, our, our family. Um, I remember sitting outside my, my junior high and just remembering what hellish years those were, as they were for all of us. Um, but sitting there and just remembering how bullied and I was and felt so rejected during that time, um, uh, remembering suicide attempts and um, remembering that feeling of feeling like there's no way anything good can come past this. There, there's nothing in front of me. Remembering those visceral feelings. Um, yeah, I remember sitting outside of uh, ex-girlfriend's houses, remembering the breakups and feeling like there's no way I'm going to get through this. Um, and now looking back and seeing the hand of God, I remembered these wilderness moments and journeys where everything was stripped away. You know those feelings where you just feel like there's nothing left. It's all been taken away. And if, if God doesn't show up in some miraculous way, I'm not going to make it. Like those were the feelings and knowing that God carried me through there, knowing that he used those hard events to bring me to himself and greater trust and dependency that I really could learn to know who God was when everything else was taken away. And in many ways, that's where I want to take us here this morning. We're going to jump into a new sermon series next week in the pastoral epistles. Um, but for this week, I just want to share some encouragement. The Lord encouraged me. Um, we read Deuteronomy 29 to open this service, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But I'd love for you to turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 16. I want to show you that what happens in our wilderness times, God has been doing all along with his children. And I want to show you one of those classic texts where God met with his children in the harshest of wilderness in order to bring them to himself and know that he's God so that you might see God is still doing the same thing today. Um, Exodus 16, if you remember from Genesis and our study in Genesis, after uh, sin entered in the world and the rebellion of Adam and Eve, God promised that he would send a redeemer. And so all Genesis did was trace that promise. And eventually he chose one man named Abraham uh, and his wife, Sarah, and they were barren. And God promised through you, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to have descendants more than you can count. And in, in through one of them, all the earth's going to be blessed. And we saw that God did that from Abraham. And then he had Isaac and then Isaac had Jacob and Jacob had his 12 sons. And through a famine, God moved them to Egypt to preserve them. And it was God's blessing. It looked like a hard thing, but God brought them into Egypt. They came in as 70 people. They would go out 400 years later as almost 3 million. 
But it happened because a Pharaoh rose who did not know Joseph and so treated the next generation harshly, made them slaves for 400 years until God said, enough's enough. I'm gonna deliver my people and I'm gonna bring them out miraculously. I'm gonna bring them into the land that I promised from the very beginning. And uh, that's where this story picks up about a month after the Red Sea crossing. I just want you to listen to these words. Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse one. They set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Now, don't think wilderness of sin as sin as we know it. Uh, It's pronounced sin because when the Greeks translated the Hebrew, they couldn't pronounce the word, the letters TZ. They had to just call it sin. And so it ends up though in English being a play on words because there was a lot of sin that happened in that wilderness. However, so in between there, between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full. Now for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So it's been about a month since God miraculously parted the Red Sea sent all those plagues upon Egypt, delivered his people. He's going to bring them out. And God had promised them that he's going to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And everybody that was in that journey, they knew the geography. They knew that from Egypt to Canaan, the promised land, it was only a six-day journey. That's how, if you were to walk from Egypt into Israel, it take you six days. It's not that long. However, here they are. It's been a month now. There's about 3 million of them and they're nowhere near Canaan. They've been taken in a completely different direction. In fact, I want you to look on the screen. This is where they are right now. That doesn't look like the land flowing with milk and honey. And they are out there and they're They are complaining, they're miserable. They're looking around going, Moses, you promised us this great lush land. What are you doing? You're gonna kill us. And they're just grumbling and complaining. Listen, I don't know about y'all, my kids, we couldn't walk an hour in the Galleria before they're complaining about it. I can't imagine being out in this thing, just, just so angry and bitter and they're just moaning and we're miserable. It's hot. Like you didn't bring us, you brought us to Texas. What are you doing in August? And I'm miserable. I'm, my feet hurt. I'm hangry. My kids are suffering. And if you don't do something, there is no way we're going to survive here. We're going to die. Now, every time I used to read that text, I, I thought, really? Grumbling and complaining until every year that I've taken a group on a study trip to Israel and we go down in this place and we're out there for maybe three hours and we are just, this is miserable. Get us out of here. Get us to the Galilee. Get us on a boat. You know, this is just miserable. 22 times, by the way, in the text, the word grumble or complain shows up. That was their attitude regarding the lack of food and water. Just basic necessities. They're fearful of death. And, you know, 
notice they're wishing they were back in Egypt. And by the way, when you find yourself fantasizing about how good it was when you were a kidnapped hostage in a forced labor camp, eating meat pots all day, that's when you know you're in a place of total desperation. That's how bad this situation has got to be. And notice their direct complaint against Moses. You didn't bring us to the promised land to feed us and save us. No, you brought us to a completely different place to starve us and kill us. And notice the place that is mentioned three times in that text, wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, when you read your English Bible, what comes to mind when you see wilderness? For years, when I read wilderness, I would think like Ewok Village, or I would think, you know, Mirkwood and Middle Earth, some, some form of like trees or something, you know, Big Sur. I don't know what I was thinking of wilderness. Um, and then every time I come across the word desert in my Bible, well, I've, I'm thinking dune, Timothy Chalamet out in the middle of the desert and there's some sand dunes everywhere, whatever it may be. Y'all need to get that out of your minds if that's what you're thinking. The desert we're talking about here is nothing like that at all. And in fact, in your Old Testament, in Hebrew, there's actually five common words that they can use for desert. They're all gonna get translated for the most part, desert or wilderness in our Bibles, but there's five different words and they have very different meanings. I wanna give you three of them here this morning just uh, to serve our purposes for what we're talking about in this text. One of the most common words for desert in the Hebrew is the word midbar, okay? Midbar looks like this. Midbar is it's used over 270 times in the Old Testament. It's just a generic term for desert. And it looks like kind of what, if you've been to Big Bend, what Big Bend looks like a little bit. It's, a, it's desolate, yeah, it's dry, but there are places where you're gonna find rivers and streams, you're gonna find springs, you're gonna find vegetation uh, in, in the midbar. Uh, midbar is what is in mind in Psalm 23 when we're talking about how the shepherd... Um, takes them out, makes us lie down in green pastures, leads us by still waters. Midbar actually is that. Psalm 23 is actually that. That's what it would have been like. This is the area where shepherds and Bedouins would live because there's resources there. It's not plush by any means, but it is inhabitable. And, um, and Moses, in fact, had spent 40 years prior to the Exodus journey in Midian, which there he was learning the midbar life. That's what he was doing. So midbar is a place that you can live. It's still desert. There's another term though for desert that shows up in our Bibles and it's the word siyah, siyah. We would spell it in English T-S-I-Y-Y-A-H, siyah. Just means drought or dry. It's another word for desert. But in this desert, nobody lives in this desert. No shepherds, no goats, no Bedouins, no resources whatsoever. You have no vegetation, no springs. It's too difficult to live in. This is the kind of desert that you could at least pass through though. Meaning the sea only lasts for about a day's journey. So you can get through it if you have, you know, bring some water supplies. You can get through it in a day to the next place. It's kind of like what's in between Dallas and Houston. Um, you don't really want to, you know, live anywhere between there. You just want to keep driving and hope for a Bucky's. If you can get there, then it gets you to the next spot. You're going to be okay. So Tzia is traversable, but it's not inhabitable. 
In fact, you can trace all the ancient cities of Israel. If you were to take a map and notice all the cities of ancient Israel, they're all about 25 miles apart. You know why? Because that's the amount of distance that you could travel in a day by foot to get to the nearest spring. And so you would go 25 miles. The average Sia is about 25 miles of barren desert. But there's a third term, and it is by far the hardest of all deserts. In Hebrew, it is known as Yeshimon. Yeshimon. This is the hardest desert of all, and this is where um, Israel was in this moment. It's a term that only occurs 14 times in your Old Testament. You're often going to see it translated in your Bibles as barren nothingness or wasteland. That's what this desert is. It is completely unforgiving. Unlike Midbar, you cannot survive in this desert. And unlike Sia, there's no way to get help. You're not 25 miles to the nearest gas station. You are in the middle of nowhere, days and days and days from anyone or any resource. And the Yeshimon that stretches from southern Sinai and to southern Israel and into southern Arabia, it is about 150 miles long. You are six days to the nearest resource. It is one of the roughest conditions in all of earth. And so I mention all of that just to say this, two questions we want to ask in this text. One, where is God taking his people in this text? Which desert do they find themselves in? And then secondly, why is he taking them there rather than into the promised land? So here's the thing. Exodus 16 doesn't go into much detail. I want you to keep your place in Exodus 16, but I want you to listen to this from Psalm 106 that recounts this same story, but gives us more detail. Listen to these words off them on the screen. Psalm 106, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, they did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. So understand this, before God even parts the Red Sea, Israel is already complaining before the Red Sea even parts. But yet God saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a midbar. That's the word that's used there. The Red Sea, when it parted, that ground they walked on, they would call it like a desert, it's, but like a midbar desert. There's resources there. God led them through that. So he saved them from the hand of the foe. He redeemed them from the power of the enemy and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. And then they believed, they believed his words and they sang his praise. Well, of course they did. He just did a mighty thing. But they soon forgot. Right after the Red Sea, they soon forgot his works and they did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the midbar wilderness but they put God to test in the Yeshimon, the desert. So the psalmist seems to indicate that God purposely did not take Israel 
the quick, easy six-day route into the promised land, but instead he is going to take them to the most difficult place on planet Earth where everything is going to be stripped away. Deuteronomy 32.10 reinforces this idea. Listen to this. It says, he found him, speaking of Israel, finding God, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. Where did Israel find God? Two words in Hebrew, tohu yeshimon, in barren nothingness. That's where they're going to find God. This is where God is bringing his people. Two to three million people in the middle of nowhere, no harder place to survive, no resources, no help, no way to provide for yourself. Not even Bear Grylls is going to survive in the Yeshimon. Unless God himself intervenes miraculously, Israel is going to die. And he doesn't just bring them for a few days before he goes, okay, lesson, let's get on up to the land of promise. He's going to take them there for 40 years. Get your mind around that. 40 years in the Yeshimon. And so that answers the first question, where is God taking his people? He's taking them to the Yeshimon. The next question is, why would he do that? Moses sums up this whole text. I want you to see in chapter 16, in verse 11 and 12, we get a picture here. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. So I want you to say to them, at twilight, you're going to eat meat. I'm going to provide for you. In the morning, you shall be filled with bread. They're not going to go a single day in the Yeshimon without me providing for you. I'm going to take care of you. Then, listen to this, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now we read earlier Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29 synthesizes all of this. I want you to hear it again this way. It's on the screen here. Moses summoned all of Israel and he said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, those great wonders, everything that you saw through that Red Sea was amazing, wasn't it? Yet know this, to this very day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. During that time, your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. You've not eaten bread. You have not drunk wine or strong drink. You, you have gone without so that I could take care of you. Why? So that you may know that I am the Lord, your God. Did you catch that? After I feed you in a place where you can't feed yourself, after I give you drink in a place where you can't quench your own thirst, after I clothe you in a place where you can't even clothe yourself, after I do all of this when you have nothing, then, then, three words in Hebrew, yada, Yahweh, Elohim. 
you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Elohim, God, I am the almighty, all-powerful, all-sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth with just a word in my mouth. What I do goes, I am over in control of everything. That God, but not just that God, Yahweh, your God. That's the personal covenant keeping name of God who fulfills his promises to his children, who never forsakes them. Even when they have nothing, that's when he becomes everything. And to that God, you shall yada, you shall know him. Now understand this, in the West, our idea of knowledge is usually equated with cognitive head knowledge. Generally equates to book smarts, Wikipedia downloading of information. But in Hebrew, understand the word yada, that knowledge is, is not just academic, it's intimate. It's intimate. It means to experience something or someone so deeply that you'll never be the same afterwards. Yada is used a lot in the Old Testament in different ways. In Genesis chapter four, verse one, Adam yadad Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. That yada is an experiential knowledge between a husband and wife through sexual intimacy of knowing each other in a way that you can't know anybody else. We also see in Psalm 31, verse seven, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction, O God. You have yadad, the distress of my soul. That is an experiential knowledge that God has intimately of you in your suffering. He knows right where you're at. He knows you and it is a knowledge to the point of caring for somebody in their need. Exodus 33, 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Why? For you have found favor in my sight and I yadah you, Moses, by name. It is an experiential knowledge of personal relationship. I don't know just something about you. I know you. I know your heart I know what your desires are, what you long for. I know everything about you. Psalm 9, verses 9 through 10, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who yada your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. It is an experiential knowledge of God's rescue of his salvation that he has given you. So yada means far more than just head, head knowledge. It's an experience of intimate understanding, trust, and dependency. That being said, rather than taking his people on the quick, easy six-day route to the promised land, instead, he brings them to the Yeshimon for 40 years so that they, in a way that they never could otherwise, would know him. See, they weren't ready for the promised land yet. Had God just taken Israel and their grumbling and complaining straight to the promised land, that would have been like a spoiled little child who got their inheritance early without ever knowing the parents, ever knowing what their values were, never knowing what that inheritance was even meant for. God knows us better. And 
what they thought they knew by lecture, God knows they're going to have to relearn through lab. And the yeshimon that he brings them to, the yeshimon that he brings us to, is the place of testing. It is the place that God brings his people to learn what it means to be squeezed, to learn what it means to be brought to the end of yourself, to learn what it means to have no way to provide for yourself, much less your family, unless God comes through. It is to have everything stripped away so that you may know who God really is that you would cry out to him in trust. God knew that in their salvation, even though they had left Egypt, Egypt had not left them. And God knew the only way that they would truly adah him is in the Yeshimon, not the Midbar, not even the Tzia, in the Yeshimon. Church, I wanna tell you this, 4,000 years later, the courses in God's curriculum have not changed. God knows every one of us is going to have to go through our own yeshimons in this lifetime. Some of you have already walked through some of them. Some of you are in one right now. God knows that he has to take us there in order to trust him in a way that we never could without I know what it's like. I've tasted my own yeshimones in my life. I've mentioned some that were earlier, young as a kid. Some of y'all may know and remember, um, 2011 is probably a, a huge yeshimone that God brought my family to when we lost 11 family members in a two-year stretch. Lost, between my wife and I, lost three of our parents, lost all of our grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles, I mean, we were doing funeral after 11 funerals in two years, 11 funerals in 24 months. I mean, every, every other month was a funeral. And there's this point where it's like, Lord, what are you doing? When you go to the Yeshimon, you start asking questions you never thought you were going to ask. You start holding God in contempt in a way that you thought you never would. You're like, God, what are you doing? Taking everybody away. Like, we're not ready for this. God just strips it all away. I, we're going through kind of a yeshimon right now, just in some of some parenting challenges that we've got. My wife and I right now, where it's like, Lord, what is going on? I don't know that I've got the resources for this. I don't, I don't know I'm going to make it through. And some of you are walking through your yeshimon right now. Everything's been stripped away. The bottom's completely fallen out. You're at a place where you feel like maybe you're at the end of your rope, where you're thinking literally you have nowhere else to turn right now, a place where that if God doesn't show up, I mean, truthfully, if God doesn't show up, you're not sure how you're gonna make it. And I want you to know this, God has purposely brought you there. Not because he's cruel, not because he's angry at you, but because he loves you. And he knows that apart from him, you will forever lack your greatest joy in this life. And sometimes he has to bring us to a place where everything's taken away that we have previously trusted in above him so that we can know who God really is. God is kind to do so, even though it is so 
painful in the midst of it. You know, interestingly enough, 1,500 years after this event in Exodus 16, there was another group of Israelites who were on a hillside in Galilee grumbling and complaining because they had no food to eat. And as they sat there, they grumbled and complained against Jesus Christ. And they said this in John chapter six, here is their complaint. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're launching attacks at Jesus going, we're out in this desolate place. There's nowhere to eat. You're talking about food and bread. Hey, Moses gave the people bread to eat when they were in the wilderness. What have you got for us? And they're upset. And Jesus responds to them and he says these words, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, well, sir, give us this bread then. Hey, we'll take this. And Jesus said to them, and listen to these words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. In other words, that miraculous provision that God gave in the wilderness in Exodus 16 and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that miraculous provision, that was simply a trailer for what was coming. That was a movie preview for the real substance that would come, a shadow of the true substance. When God would send his own son into the hardest yeshimon that has ever been known to man, and that is planet Earth, where we find ourselves in an impossible situation to bring about forgiveness for the sin that has cursed us where we can't save ourselves, where no works of our own can save us. We are in a yeshimon where if God doesn't show up and provide, we are all going to hell. And God in the abundance of his mercy and grace and love for us sent Jesus into our yeshimon to provide for us by going to the cross and dying the death that we deserve for our sin, shedding his blood so that our sins can be atoned for and forgiven. And by putting our trust in Jesus Christ, we can be cleansed of all of our sin and righteousness and we can be adopted by God into his family and secured for eternity. And Jesus rising from the grave rose so that we could experience new life, a regenerated heart and secure that day when one day he will return and take us into the promised land. But in the meantime, he is now ascended, sitting at the right hand throne of the father where he intercedes for us in the midst of our ongoing yeshimons here on this earth. And he provides the Holy Spirit as his sustaining presence to care for us, provide for us, conform us to his image day by day until that day when he says the 40 years is up, it's time to enter in. This is what our God has done for us. Church, when you think about this year that we're heading into in 2024, 
One of the things I'd encourage you to do is I got a piece of it here on my sabbatical. Spend some time reflecting upon your yeshimones. Maybe they're the yeshimones that you've already walked through and you can testify with many in this room today of how God cared for you and how God met you and how you learned to trust God in the midst of that. Maybe some of you again are walking through your own yeshimone right now and you're launching the same questions that I've launched before. Can I just encourage you that you are not there by accident, that God loves you. Your yeshimon is a person, place, or thing that has been stripped away so that you can discover where your true need lies in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've lost your job and you're not sure how God's gonna provide a new one. Maybe you have lost a family member, a loved one, and you're not quite sure how you're gonna make it through it. Maybe you've had a bad breakup or a horrific divorce. Maybe you've had an achievement or a status or an ability stripped away from you. Maybe your health has been taken away. Maybe your finances are not what they were. Whatever it is, you find yourself in a place where everything has been stripped away. I want you to know that is the moment if you will lean into it, not grow bitter, not kick against the goads of God, but lean into your heavenly father, you will discover what it really means to know him, to intimately trust him. One of the blessings over my sabbatical, my wife and I read this book together uh, by Elizabeth Elliot, Suffering is Never for Nothing. It's actually a book that was written after she had died. If you're not familiar with, um, uh, let me clarify that. Uh, It was written about her after she had died. Uh, It was her own words from a, from a, um, a conference she did. If you're not familiar with her story, Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary married to Jim Elliot. Her, them and their 10-month-old daughter went down to Ecuador. Jim went with several other guys to go share the gospel with an Indian tribe there and they were all speared to death. It left Elizabeth as a single widow raising her 10-month-old daughter. And while everybody else took off and rightly so in many ways went back to the U.S., Elizabeth stayed there and she actually went and moved in with the very tribe that speared her husband and lived there for two years sharing the gospel with them. Powerful story. But she says in this, this written in this book here says, again and again, I've had people say to me, how do you handle loneliness? And I say, I can't handle loneliness. They ask, well, didn't you spend a lot of your time alone in the jungle? And I replied, yes, I did. I spent way more years single than I did married. And they said, well, how did you handle it? And she says, well, I didn't. I couldn't. I have to turn it over to somebody else who can. In other words, my loneliness became my offering. And so if God doesn't always remove the feeling of loneliness... Maybe it is an order that every minute of every day, perhaps I have something to offer up to him and say, Lord, here it is. I can't handle this. I'm giving it to you. It's you that I need to know. Church family, wherever your yeshimon is, God is sufficient. And if you will hold fast to the one who holds fast to you, 
I promise you, he will prove himself faithful. He will carry you through this. And one day, he will take you and me and every child that has been adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. He will take us into the promised land and heal all those wounds. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, how we need to know you. God, I confess so much of my faith for so long was just cognitive head knowledge. As I look back on the various deserts of my life, and I know there are many in here who have their own deserts. God, even though it was some of the most painful times in my life that I would never prescribe to anyone, I can't help but filled, be filled with gratitude because I, was, I know it is in those moments where I could offer up my desert as my offering to you and to know that you meet me in those places. You prove yourself faithful. So God, whoever needs that message today, and I trust it's all of us, would you remind us you're enough and that you want us to know you, that we could hold fast to you as you hold fast to us until that glorious day when your son returns and takes us home. Pray all this for your glory, our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.